0: Welcome to another edition of The Lighter Side of Serial Killers here on the Boom-Bastic Media Network. I am your host, Keith Rovere. I am an author and collector of true crime art and memorabilia. Today, we are going to hear from the happy face killer himself, Keith Jesperson. Now, Keith calls me once or twice a week. We have the most amazing phone calls. Uh, And again, this is The Lighter Side of Serial Killers. Most of the time, (laughs) not exactly today. Uh, Actually, most of the conversations that me and Keith have are very lighthearted, and people think the last podcast I did about how to write a serial killer, they think we talk about chopping up bodies and disposing bodies and planning this and psychopath this. We mostly talk about life. You got to remember, a lot of these men and women, they haven't really had anybody to open up to. I mean, if they did, they held this deep, deep dark secret, of course. Um, But most of them just want a friend to talk to. Um, It's part of rehabilitation. It's my goal in in a lot of this, Um, just to be a friend to a lot of these people. Um, But Keith does want to get some information out there. A lot of the lies that his daughter's been telling about him, about the killing and torturing of kittens. We'll get to that at another time. Uh, But we wanted to talk about um, the police, how they just botched this case. Um, the case of Tanya Bennett, Keith's first murder. Now, he's going to go into pretty grave detail about the murder itself. Again, it's more of the darker side of serial colors today. Um, but I want you to pay attention to um, how the police handled everything. That's kind of what really Keith wants to get across. That's why we're doing this podcast. Um, we had a long conversation. We're going to have to do it over uh, part one and part two. I try to keep it to a half hour. Um, so let's start back, January 21st, 1990. So let's bring Keith Jesperson into the conversation. Mr. Jesperson, uh, let's go back to January 21st, 1990, uh, the day you met Tanya Bennett. Uh, what do you remember, if anything, about that day? Uh, how are you feeling, having a good day, a bad day? What made you go to the B&I Tavern, uh, I think over in Portland, Oregon? And how did you meet Tanya Bennett? Well,
1: it was it was, it was a real foggy morning. And uh, the fog didn't burn off around the house until about 10 o'clock. I had normally had a kind of a routine going on because I was drawing unemployment. I wasn't working at the time. I had just got off uh, my, my job It ended in November uh, running heavy equipment for Copenhagen Construction. So I, had been, I was drawing unemployment. I wasn't driving a truck. And... Uh, i gotten into routine, and I'd get up in the morning, I'd have my morning coffee, breakfast, and then I would take off and go for a walk. And I'd walk down to the Fred Meyer, uh, down there by Burnside, and then cross on over to Stark and kind of make my rounds. And, and it just so happened at about 1 o'clock that afternoon, I walked there in the B&I Cavern. When I walked in, here's, uh, uh, going, I, was, I was walking past all the empty tables. There's nobody really in there except for Uh, two guys and this gal at one pool table and then the barmaid at the end of the bar. As I was walking towards the bar, this gal comes running over and throws her arms around me and and, uh, gives me this really deep hug and says, why don't you come and join my party? And I was like looking over at the the two guys that she was with, and they were kind of looking at me like they didn't really want me over there. So I declined, and I walked up to the bar, and... and, uh, uh, grabbed myself a beer and uh, some change. and went over to a pool table and, and racked a few balls and, and played for about an hour and a half. And then left and walked on home. That was when I met her the first time. I was at home for oh, about three hours, three four hours, and then I uh, decided I would take my car, which is 1974 Chevy Nova, and I was deciding whether to go back to the B and tavern or play pool or i uh, go down to the truck stop and, sit and have coffee, talk to some of the other truckers. My girlfriend, Roberta, had left me um, about two weeks before with another driver for countrywide trucking out of Knoxville, Tennessee. And uh, she just, that's how, you know, I'd met her in Wheat, California uh, in, in 1988. She basically was hopping my truck there. So it was just the norm. That's what you get. And I was pissed off because she was gone. And so when I was, I went back to the bar and, and I go back there thinking I'd get into a pool game. And uh, when I got there, the, the parking lot was now full and every pool table had a roll of quarters on it waiting for another game. And I realized there was no way in hell I was going to get into a game. So I turned around and I'd I seen her, the, the, the girl, walk out of the, the bar headed out into the street. And I decided I'd just follow her along uh and see if she wanted to go party somewhere else and that's what i did so i got out to the parking lot and she walked over to a restaurant that was closed and when she came back i mentioned to her that she hugged me earlier i wondered if she wanted to go and yeah, maybe get a meal somewhere then uh hit somewhere else and have a have a good time play pool somewhere somewhere other bar. she jumped in the car with me and uh i told her i'd have to go back to my house first to uh get more money out of the dresser because I, I didn't I didn't anticipate having company. So I only had about, you know, $10, $15 on me. So I went back and I was going to get some more and we we're going to head that way. And I got her back to the house and she came in and, and we got to talking and I gave her a tour of the house and next thing you know, we're on the mattress, you know, kind of like playing. It didn't go
0: my way. Now, in everything I read about her... Uh, or even heard in documentaries, said that she was mildly retarded. Um, I talked to you, obviously, a few times about this case. Uh, and you never mentioned that. Was there any indication that when you were talking to her, hanging out, driving her home, um, that she was, that she was mentally unstable in any ways or with some form of retardation, if you will? Or you just think she was just a regular girl? Because a lot of people think, oh, he just took advantage of her because she was mildly retarded. But uh, what did you notice about her, if anything? Um, that she was mentally unstable or just seemed like a normal person having a few drinks and having some fun? So so the,
1: the thing is, is, when I walked into the bar... And she came over and hugged me and everything like that. I looked up at the at the barmaid wondering what was really going on. And she kind of made the indication she was kind of nuts. But you know that doesn't mean that doesn't mean retarded. That means she's just acting stupidly. You know, kind of like she wasn't. You know, you know she wasn't. you know, She came up to a total stranger and hugged me. But I found out later that she had a boyfriend of my size, so maybe she missed up. A, the guy, she had dated at one time, I'm not sure, but uh, my opinion on this is that I did. I think she went to the bar, I think, think she went to the bar because she could fit into those, those people around her that were drinking, because it's it's like, how many beer heads Start did she have without drinking? You know, in other words, if someone was drinking two or three beers, would they get to be a, to that point where she was, you know, kind of nutty? You know? I mean, if she's mildly retarded, what would be the uh, the basis of her going to a bar other than to try to fit in with everyone else and So you know, when I when she came home with me, I just thought she had a couple pictures of beer and she wanted to go somewhere else and play. And party. that's basically. And she jumped in. I was like, okay, how many beers does it? mean, you know, the girls all get prettier closing time, right? Something
0: along those lines. <laughs> of course. Uh, and yeah, plus, I don't think there's any guy on the planet who. Um, you know, it's hanging out, dancing around with a cute girl, hugging on them, having a bunch of drinks, getting a little buzz, and hey, you want to go back to my place? Um, there's usually only one thing on your mind, well, usually on both parties' minds. Um, so obviously everything was going well, but there obviously came a point where things turned. Um, I read that she said, "Okay, just get it over with quickly." Now, was that something you know while you were having sex, before you're having sex, or not having sex at all, and she just said that, or? Um, was that the turning point of realizing, okay, I guess, uh, you know, nothing's going to happen tonight, and it made you angry, or what specifically did she say, um, or did she even say that at all? I had, I, had, I had said that. I don't think she actually said that. Um, we, were, we were laying there,
1: where we were kind of like, uh, I was hugging her, and, and I was kind of like, you know, we're making out. And she was kind of like in a hurry to go party. It's almost like she really didn't want to spend a whole lot of time in the, you know, making out. She was more interested in going to another bar or going out to dinner and and then uh, carrying on and partying in another bar or whatever. I mean, that that was the, the, what I took from it. But she wouldn't, she wouldn't even kiss me. You know, I was kissing on her and she just quit kissing on me. And I was like, when I said to her, you know, I'm not in a hurry to get anything done here, right? She was kind of like, Pissed off. I think that I, I didn't want to, uh, didn't, didn't want to hurry up and get going. with just let's
0: play. Or I thought that was her intention, but you know I was wrong. You know? Yeah, I'm pretty sure I would have been wrong too, as of most men in that situation, thinking, uh, "Hey, we're going to party tonight, and uh, maybe not tonight." I know, <laughs> she came in the house with me. She, she laid on, laid on down you know, and we were following around each other, and that
1: was. I just thought that's where that's where it was going, and, mm-hmm. and it didn't go as I, I thought it would. When she didn't kiss me, I was like so mad and I was just angry. Mm-hmm. Like I looked down at her and I was pissed off. And I wasn't pretty pissed off at her. I think I was pissed off at my girlfriend Roberta for leaving me. And I was pissed off at my world and I had all no falling apart. You know, my kids were in Spokane. I was nowhere around them, and, and everything was just you know. Went to, went to crap on me, and I did, I did it to myself, I know I did, I did it to myself, and I struck her, I punched her, I was pissed off, and I never, i never hit a woman before in my life, i really really hit anybody, other than I was, I boxed for a while, and, but, you know, I never, never got into that kind of an altercation with Ang, but when I punched her, and I hit her, and I hit her again, I was just, just like a release, and then I realized the damage I had done, and and I was caught between a rock and a hard place. Do I take her to the hospital or do I just cover it up and move on? And I chose I wrongly. I, I decided to, to kill her and move on. And, and this is the first person I ever killed. So, so it was a kind of a crazy
0: crazy type of a situation. I was just, I was more mad at myself for being in that situation than anything. Now, this, of course, was um, obviously your first murder. I mean, how, take us through the thought process maybe a little bit of, uh, what were you thinking? I mean, obviously your, um, your mind must have been going a, a, a mile a minute, and how long did it take you to kind of get your wits together, to kind of get a plan? You know, do I go to the hospital? Do I, you know, find a dump site? Whatever it may be, but... Now, what was it like trying to get your wits together? I don't know if it's getting my wits together. It's to getting to the thought process of how to take care of
1: this. Where am I, I going to go? I mean, if I can't go to the hospital, I'm going to you know, I didn't make no um, secret about where I lived. I didn't make no secret of being in there where I was. And so uh, I'm sure they would, they would find out where I lived, and then they'd come after me. Well, I would go to prison probably for the assault, and then, I, I rationalized that I don't want to do that. I could take her to the hospital and drop her off, and hopefully that she wouldn't remember, but you know, there's a lot of hope there involved. I made that decision, and, and it probably took me a couple minutes to uh, rationalize it out. And my best bet was to, to kill and, and kind of move on. And that's what I chose to do. Mm-hmm. The only thing, you know, really, is I I, I tried to strangle her and I grabbed my hands around her neck and I tried to grab on for about it took you know a couple of minutes and I realized that this wasn't going in the direction it was supposed to be going. It's not like on TV where you grab the grab a throat and 15 seconds later they're dead. It doesn't happen like that. It takes a long time to do this. Not a slow, pro, it's a slow process. That's why when they when they they take you to trial and that. They say there's a lot of premeditation and strangulation because it takes such a long time
0: to kill someone. It's more like around four minutes. A lot of time of thinking. Four minutes ticking by on the clock is a long time. Now, I think you told me before, even read, that uh, you weren't sure if she was dead. Uh, is that why you grabbed the rope? You know, just in case you obviously you didn't want her to wake up at that point. They don't wake up. I mean, this one here. After two minutes, she was still breathing.
1: So I had, to, I had to come up with some other solutions. So I ended up taking, I, said, I realized that what I needed to do is just apply pressure to the neck and hold it somehow without having to put my hands around the neck. That's sure. what I did. I, put, I made a fist and I put it against her, her throat and I locked my elbow and I leaned into it. and I just leaned in mm-hmm. until I, you know, I smelled urine. I, I, I realized then that she was quick breathing and that she was dead.
0: Now, obviously, it's a little bit more than just moving a body. You said you smelled urine, and obviously, there's uh, probably some blood and you know all that kind of stuff all over. Uh, it's kind of a mess to clean up. What was what was going on through your mind there of of what to do next? Obviously, it's a little bit more than just picking up somebody and uh, and taking her out of the out of the house.
1: Well, there's a lot to do. I mean, there's murderers are very very clean at all. I mean, everything like like she she uh, soiled herself, or they soiled themselves after after. Their body relaxes and the fluid's going. I She drank a couple pictures of beer, probably. So that had to go somewhere. Uh, yeah, I mean, then I thought, I thought that uh, maybe when I moved her, that it would, she it would come up through her neck. You know, I, had, I didn't know. So I grabbed a half-inch nylon rope and I tied it around her neck, and that was the reason why I put a rope around her neck. So I thought that when I moved her, that her the, the contents of her, her stomach would come out of her throat. You know, mm-hmm. what's wrong. But that—that's something else to worry
0: about. Yeah, I mean, how would you know? I mean, I might have thought the same thing.
1: This is this is what happens when you've never done it before. You start thinking about so what am I going to do next? I mean, you're, you're trying to think after after you've committed the crime of murder. Now you're trying to think of how to get away with it. Been thinking about how to get away with it before you committed the murder. You know, it just—it doesn't—it's—it's it's, this wasn't a, a planned event, so. It
0: was, it was kind of like uh, on the fly, kind of a thing. It was something I wish I could take back, but I can't. That's just how it is. Also from um, all the reports and the autopsy specifically, um, it said that Tanya um, was raped or had sexual intercourse. Uh, you initially wrote, I killed Tanya Bennett January twenty first, 1990 in Portland, Oregon. I beat her to death, raped her, and loved it. Yes, I'm sick, but I enjoy myself too. People took the blame, and I'm free. But I also heard you say that you did not have sex with her, and you did not rape her. So I guess just you know, the second set the record straight once and for all. Did you either have sex with her? Did you rape her? Um, What specifically happened as far as any type of intercourse?
1: I never had sex with her. Um, When I wrote that, when I wrote the uh, the letter. When I said about raping that it was to terrorize the
0: public mm. to try to get them to relook at the case so that they could get Laverne and John out of prison. That's a good idea. And I didn't know who they were, so I wrote uh, a bunch of stuff. Matter of fact, when mentioned all the murders. Like
1: there's four murders on, on, on top of the Bennett one, and why I wrote that happy Week letter. And I mentioned a lot of things, like this one girl was my sex slave for four days, you know, riding in a truck. That wasn't that wasn't it. I mean, here I was. There's lots of things I said that I wanted the public to be up in arms about. Not thinking I'd ever get arrested. I mean, I never thought I'd ever be arrested I have to deal. But one of the things that was really key to this is that in forensics, they knew that he didn't have he didn't have forcible sex by anyone. And when they when they made the case against John Sostowski, they they said it was
0: all consensual. I mean we don't wanna obviously just, you know, talk um, you know, trash about the victim at all, but she was a kind of a bar fly. I mean she was hanging out with two dudes uh, drinking previously in that night. Uh, you know, who knows what could have happened anyway.
1: She was with two guys for all afternoon until I showed up. So I don't know what they had or what they did. Yeah. My biggest thing was when, when I was finally arrested. Let's clear the air. I took a polygraph test and passed and I did not have sex with her. This is all comes down to forensic evidence. This is how it all plays out: is that uh, in order for me to prove that I did the crime, I had to prove that I didn't have, because would they know that she didn't have sex with anyone? Yeah. And so I had to take and pass a polygraph test, that I did not. Now when I mentioned it on the wall, when I wrote it on the wall, it's all about um, tossing in their face and say she's there, you know. But that was, um, that was to terrorize the neighborhood without turning myself in, pointing them in another direction. Of course, in doing that, I, I didn't realize that um, they would, when they're, they're trying to deny that, they're, that they put the wrong people in prison, at the same time, they're saying, see, they, he says this in a, in, a, in, a, in a letter, and that wasn't true. They come back at me and say, well, that wasn't true. That was no forcible
0: sex with her. That's how come we know John didn't. I know uh, it's it 's such a crazy story we 're definitely going to get into uh uh to the police and John and all um the craziness that went on there um but you 're at the point now where um you had to look for a spot to get rid of the body um I know it ended up being at a you know bottom of a ravine um but did you drive around for a while to look for a space um did you Uh, you know, put her in in your car or your truck and then drive around? Or how exactly did that play out to where you actually ended up disposing of the body?
1: Well, this is kind of weird. See, while while she lay dead on my floor, I get a phone call, and it's Roberta on the other end of the phone here wanting to make up with me. And so I'm sitting there for an hour on the phone talking to my my girlfriend about her wanting to come home or, or whatever and, uh, be with me some more, be whatever, and she, and Tanya's, is, is getting cold on the floor. Well, while that's happening, for an hour, I'm looking around, I'm saying, hey, there's blood on me, there's, there's this, there's that, and I was like, man, I gotta, I gotta wash my clothes, so I did, I threw them in the washing machine or dryer, There for the hour I was talking to her, I got my clothes all washed, and it calmed me down that here my girlfriend didn't know I killed somebody. And at that time, it allowed me to think about how to proceed without getting caught. And so what I ended up doing was, I, after I got down to the phone, I went over to the car and I got in with my same clothes I'd wore, but now clean. Went back to the B&I Tavern and walked in and sat at the bar, had to serve me a beer, and I, I was talking to them, and I made sure they saw me leave alone, which I did. I went back to the car, uh, and then I drove out. I'm looking for a place for her, and I went up to the Vist House Monument and down the other side. And I said, I found a white spot there, uh, right above a ravine. And I said, okay, this is where I'm going to put her. And then I drove back. I went to the AM, PM, put gas in the tank. I didn't want to run out of gas. I made sure all the taillights and the headlights worked, and all the signal lights so that I didn't get pulled over for anything like that. The only thing, I only liked that I removed was the dome light. So when I backed into the driveway, when I opened up the passenger door to go in and carry her body out to the car, that the dome light would be on. And so no one would see this. And then I, I backed into the driveway, walked in the house, and for about an hour I studied, I looked out from a closed curtain, all around to make sure there's no neighbors walking their dog or anything. And then when I felt time was clear, I reached over and I picked her up, and I carried her to the front seat of my car, set her in the front seat, shut the door, and drove back the same way I had. I, I drove her all the way back on out to the Columbia River Gorge, past the Viz House Monument. As I drove down from the Viz House Monument, it, it kind of winds around against the hill, and then the road kind of turns a really sharp northwest direction in a straight line. And right there at that first ravine is where I put her. I, I stopped. I got out. I looked up the top of the hill to make sure there's no traffic coming down the hill. I looked ahead of me. I didn't see any traffic. I ran around to the passenger door, opened it up, grabbed her by her arm, and dragged her down into the ravine. And I got about 80, 85 feet down the ravine, and then I looked down the hill, and I saw a headlights coming at me and I realized my mistake at that moment was that I had put her in a ravine that was spread up from a, or the high the roadway was on the top as well as the bottom there was a switchback somewhere in, in the middle there and I saw these headlights coming at me so I rushed back up to the car shut the passenger door got in the, the driver's side and took off and I when I got to the to the switchback was coming around the corner my headlights hit the side of the car, and it was a Multnomah County Sheriff's car. So I was within a minute either way of being caught when I put the body in the ravine, because had I been down there a minute earlier or or, or later, I should say, they would have already driven past and would have found me parked on the top of the ravine getting rid of the body. There's a, there's a lot of luck and uh, good luck and bad luck involved when you're dealing with this, these kind of situations. And from there, I drove I drove back towards Troutdale, and I stopped at the Burns Brother truck stop. And I had pre-planned I had when I when I went into the woods, shaking the body, and I was wearing Cannondale Hill bicycle riding shoes for riding a bicycle, which were really hard, soul they don't leave a, a really bad, you know, a uh, contour print. And the irony of it is, is on on Sunday morning when a bicycle rider was the one that found her. So his footprints would, would mask over mine as far as his, his bicycle shoes would, be, would mask mine probably. Yeah. And that's crazy. But I went to the truck stop and I sat in the, the, the B-Bar B restaurant in a booth. And I wasn't there five minutes and three, uh, Oregon State Police cars pulled up and they parked around my car they walked into the to, to the restaurant pointed in my direction walked over and sat in the booth right next to me and they caught me really quick and all of a sudden they realized they were just there to have, have, have a meal as well so they had no, no idea that I would just kill
0: someone I couldn't believe you stayed that calm I know I would have been freaking out oh that's <laughs> that's crazy
1: after I had that uh, after they left I stayed in the truck shop until it got daylight. And then I went out to the car, and when I, that's when I realized that her purse and her ID card, and the purse was still sitting in my car. And that's when I decided, like, where I get, where do I get rid of it? Well, I went, drove up the Sandy River Road to a spot where I would only know where it is. And then I threw it off into the bushes, which was about to poison oak and stuff. I didn't think anyone was going there. And I went on home. And when I got home, I could smell... The year and the, the death that had happened there. So I went, aired out the home and I went down. I rented a steam vac and I cleaned the carpets and everything. I tried to make everything better. and I took warm water and washed off the blood off the, the walls and the ceiling and tried to make everything go away. And uh, then I just sat there and waited. And as I and then you know. That, that next Monday, of course, I, I read in the article in the Metro section of the Oregonian where it said that a uh, body had been found in the Columbia River Gorge with a rope tied around her neck. So I knew they'd found her. And then uh, my next time I'd I read in the paper was where they'd caught two people who wanted to confess to the crime.
0: Now, this is just is one of the craziest part—well, not the craziest part of the story, but what were you thinking when you realized that somebody else— is taking credit for the murder of Tanya Bennett. I mean, were you just like, yes, you know, I got away with it, or were you just in shock that what's happening here? No one, <laughs> no one should take credit for for a murder, knowing they're going to go to jail. But what were you, what's going through your mind at that time?
1: It literally was a Perry Mason moment. I I'd watch Perry Mason every time you watch to Perry Mason show. They the police arrest the wrong people, and they got a lawyer that's called Perry Mason would come in and say that it would save them, which saved the day. These people were, I, this is this is the police arrested two people, uh, I wanted to confess. I couldn't understand that. I was like, I simply thought the police made a mistake. That they just made a mistake, and that uh, it needs to be taken care of, kind of like. And I, didn't, I knew was no lawyer was going to do it, so uh, that's why the letter happened in 1994, but... This was 1990. This was uh, four years before the letter went to the press. So this is like, I was just shocked, and I was glad they, they weren't coming after me. But again, at the same time, I thought that maybe this was just a ploy in the paper to get the real guy to come forward.
0: Ooh, I didn't think of that. You know, I, I thought
1: that maybe there's a ploy here that they're they're really trying to reach out, trying to get someone else to tell you, tell you, oh, no, that's not it here.
0: This is the real person I did this kind of like, But mm. that didn't happen. Now, one question I know everybody uh, wants to know uh, is your motivation for coming forward. You clearly could have gotten away with it, but yet you chose to take credit for it. Uh, I think most people would think you just did that for the notoriety, you know, for yourself. Like, hey, you know, look at me. Or was it just to, uh, to get innocent people out of prison? You know, it was you know, the kindness of your heart, uh, if you will. Uh, so what really was your motivation?
1: Well, you know, I, I, I had sent the letter off in 1994, and they didn't reinvestigate the crime to find out, you know, that they'd put the wrong people in it. What, what i find out a lot later was that they knew they'd put the wrong people in They just didn't want anyone else to come along and prove it. So, But, but when I was arrested in 1995, I'd actually turned myself in for the Winneham murder. And then in the June of '95. Of Detective Rick Buckner had compared the the this, this face letter to a, a, a suicide note I sent to my brother Brad, and and they they compared that. They said this, I, I'm, they're going to prove to me, everyone in the world, that I was a happy face killer. So I realized at that point when I talked to my attorney.
0: That is the end of part one. Stay tuned for part two next Thursday right here on the lighter side of Serial Killers. See ya!